The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. I invite you to have a seat and turn with me to this morning's scripture, Psalm 41. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be a Bible in one of the pews around you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one with you today as a gift. Again, Psalm 41. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 469. Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We're in the Psalms. That's good. We waited for months to say that, and I'm excited to say that. I'll mention a couple of things before we actually turn to the Psalms um, and look at Psalm 41. Um, First, if Park Church is your home, we want to constantly encourage you and call you um, to bear responsibility financially for who we are as a community, as a family. Um, And so if you're not currently giving um, to support the mission and the the vision of our church, we want to encourage you to do so. Um, You can do so every week. Um, There's two boxes in the back. There's actually one over here. You can also do so online. Um, through our website, uh, to, it's really probably the most convenient way to give. We want to call us all to bear responsibility for this community that God has called us to. We don't believe that the church um, is, is primarily a provider of goods and services. We're a community in which all of us bear responsibility for what God has called us to um, as a community and a, a, as, a, um, a, as we've been called into mission um, in our city. Um, I want to mention to you, uh, if you have a child or person, depending on how sensitive they are to the word child, um, in your home uh, between uh, 6th grade and 12th grade, uh, we kicked off over this course of this year our part teens ministry, which is basically an attempt to, to partner with parents um, in supporting, discipling um, students, and I'm um, calling them to, to love Jesus, to, to serve His church, um, and to understand His mission in the world. And so um, we've got a number of different things going on this summer um, for our teenagers. Uh, if um, you have one, if you know of one around you, um, uh, you should grab one of these cards there over there on the info table in that corner. 
um, you grab one of these cards and kind of see what's going on this summer, all the information, um, and where you can go get more information is available on this card. Last thing um, I will mention before I pray. Uh, we are kicking off um, our summer in the Psalms. Every summer we come back uh, to the Psalms to study them. Um, and this year we get to kick off with Psalm 41. Um, a number of different things are going to be going on during this summer um, to help us as a community engage with the Psalms. Um, is, uh, first, first one I'll mention to you is you should have been handed this card when you walked in today. I want to draw your attention to it. Wednesday mornings at 6.30 in the morning. Um, and uh, you can come to as many of these as you want or as little of these as you want. Our, our hope is that as a community on Wednesday mornings, we would be able to come together to, to learn from the Psalms how to worship and how to pray. <coughs> the idea being that you're not just hearing a sermon on Sundays, um, but we're actually engaging together and, and trying to enter into the process of praying these psalms, um, worshiping Jesus in the light of these psalms together. And so Wednesday morning, 6.30 a.m., um, here at the building, um, we'll gather every Wednesday um, just to, to practice those things together. Uh, more information is available on this card. Um, schedule is there on this card. Uh, we would love to have you. Um, I also want to draw your attention. Um, we have a bunch, a, a bunch, I don't know if that's a technical term, but a bunch of uh, really, really gifted visual artists in our church. And so each week we've commissioned one of those artists um, to, to put together a piece of art that, that reflects the psalm that we'll be studying um, as a church. And so uh, this week, and they'll, they'll be featured there in the foyer, um, and, uh, and you can um, see the piece of art beside the art. It is actually a description of the art, how, how they um, kind of arrived and what they're trying to do with um, the art that they, are, um, that they have arted. Um, and so uh, you, you can see that if, if, you don't have, if you're like me and you look at a piece of art and it's beautiful and impressive and you have no idea what you're looking at, um, the, there's a description there beside uh, the work and you can study it, look at it, and then go get someone and impress them and walk them over there and kind of stand in front of the sign so they can't see it and describe to them what they're looking at um, on the palette. So that's going to be happening each and every week. I want to encourage you to um, reflect on um, the work and give thanks to God that, that God's brought artists into this community that can help us to reflect on, to think about, um, and, and to worship Jesus in the light of um, these psalms. There's also a number of books um, on our bookshelves on the psalms. I would commend to you uh, a book by N.T. Wright called A Case for the Psalms. Um, it, it is profound and helpful in, in, in kind, of, kind of reorienting us towards uh, what are we looking at when we open the psalms together. And so we'll be spending um, the, the next three months together studying, worshiping, praying, um, trying to learn um, from this beautiful book that God has given us. But um, let's pray, and then we will discuss that. Father, what a, what a marvelous thing that we treat lightly, that you've given us a book like the Psalter, um, where not only do you put on display what you're like in your character and in your severity and in your grace and in your mercy and in your beauty, um, but, but, but also you, you invite us not simply to see and comprehend who you are, but, but the very nature of these psalms command us, commend to us a, a falling on our face and praying these psalms. You teach us not only to see, but to speak. You teach us not only to comprehend, but, but also and to engage and to worship in the light of. And you teach us the words that we're to speak. You teach us the, the emotions that we're to feel. 
You give us permission to express things that, that for one reason or another, man, our hearts are slow to express. And so, God, we give thanks for this book. And I pray now, not only for today, but for this whole season for us as a church, that you would draw us in, God, that we would see your love, that we would rest in your love and in the light of it, God, that we would be able to enter into these psalms and give expression to, and whether it's something that we're enduring or something that a brother or sister is enduring, that we would be able to give expression Um, to these beautiful, beautiful works of poetry and prayer and song. So God, call us into considering what you're like and praying in the light of who you are as you've instructed us. And so God, I I pray, um, I pray with the disciples, teach us to pray. In your name we pray, amen. We come back year after year after year to this um, great book, this great collection of, of prayers and poetry and song all mingled together. And we do so every year primarily for three reasons. Um, and every year I like, to, I like to, at the very beginning, kind of rehash what those three reasons are um, and, and kind of position us as a community to, to know what are we looking for, what are we trying to learn over the next few months as we reflect on these beautiful works that God has given us and instructed us to pray in the light of. Um, and, and so the, the three reasons, that the first um, is, is that essentially like many of us have, have grown up in, in church traditions where um, we've grown very, very accustomed to and very, very good at um, singing happy songs, praying happy prayers, putting on a happy face, um, and giving expression to prayers that are primarily joyous or happy or really happy or exceedingly happy and bouncy. The Psalms will empty you of the ability to do that only. Um, You see, what we encounter when we encounter the Psalms is the full range of human emotions. Uh, There can be kind of hardwired into us when we consider what does it mean to speak to God, to have communion with God, to give expression to who we are and and who God is and and, and to pray to Him as our God. Uh, There can be this kind of legalistic, weird religious notion that what God requires of us is we put on our best clothing, we kind of iron our shirts, we we put on our happy face, we kind of put a, a, a nice spin on everything going on in our lives and we present ourselves to God as happy people, um, joyfully content with the circumstances of our lives and and pretend like everything is fine. But as we encounter God in the Psalms, as he calls us into real communion with him, and and I use the word real there on purpose, real communion, not religious communion, not fake communion, not, hey, you can pretend to be what you think you're supposed to be as you come before this God. And he gives us um, instructions. He gives us prayers. He gives us words to give expression to emotions um, that, that, that we're not accustomed to expressing to him. The depths of human despair are to be found in these chapters. The, the, the loudest Rage imaginable is given expression in these chapters. The heights of delight and longing and joy are given expression in these chapters. And what we have here as we look at the Psalms are not just a record of the prayers of the people of God. 
Now we confessionally believe as the church that, that what we see, what we read, when we read these psalms are, are not just a record, not just an historical account, but, but actually the instructions given to us by God himself on how to communicate with him, how to pray to him, how to give, um, how to take um, the, the, the wad of emotions that just kind of, it's just buried in there and give expression to them as we experience communion with, with, with the real person who is God. To tell him what we feel. To give expression to our pain, to our anger, to our joy, to our gratitude. The full range. And so we come into the Psalms each and every summer. And our hope, our prayer, our longing is that we together as a community would learn from the Psalms. How to speak and how to feel again. How to talk to, to the one who loves us, who's forgiven us, who's called us to himself. He, he gives us permission here to feel things and to go, give expression to and real feelings, real anger, real despair, real depression at times, and real hope. And so our first prayer is that, that, that we would enter in, we would learn together how to speak this way, think this way, feel this way as we encounter God. The second kind of major prayer that we pray is as you enter this room, um, week in and week out, there'll be many times we encounter um, a, a set of circumstances, a set of uh, 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 pain in these psalms um, that, that seems foreign to you. Uh, maybe you remember a time in your life where you felt that way, where you thought that way, um, uh, but maybe you don't. Maybe everything seems to be fine for you. The Psalms call us to remember that, that when we pray, we don't only just pray alone. We don't just give expression to our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own hopes, our own fears. But we sit and we stand and we sing and we pray as a community. A community that, that in this room right now, whatever's going on in your life, there, there are people in this room who are struggling, who feel this week the depths of despair who feel this week the heights of joy and gratitude. We are surrounded by people whose circumstances are different than you, and the Psalms calls us into a kind of collective understanding and a way of expressing ourselves together to God so that, so that we stand in solidarity with one another, and not just alone as individuals feeling pain, feeling hope, feeling joy, feeling gratitude, but in a community where every emotion, every circumstance imaginable, you're surrounded by it right now. And God calls us to pray to him, to speak to him, not only as individuals, but as a community. To, to hurt with one another, to hope with one another, to despair with one another, to call one another to see again and to behold again the nature and the character of this God. The last thing that we pray God would um, allow us to see summer in and summer out is that Jesus really is the hero. That these are the prayers that Jesus prayed. 
Um, you see them coming out everywhere as he's dying on the cross. I don't think he kind of prepared, oh, what psalm should I quote right now as I'm in agony and pain and about to die and I'm hanging on this cross. You know, you know, his mind, his life was saturated with living, praying, thinking, feeling these psalms. And as he's in the depths of pain and agony, he gives expression to the psalms, crying out to his God. In interacting with the disciples, you'll hear him quote um, a line here, a line there, referencing a psalm. And so we encounter Jesus in the psalms, so, so long as we understand this is what Jesus prayed. But not just that. We're going to see this week, in fact, um, that the psalms themselves are about Jesus. Um, the, the gospel writers actually quote um, verse 9 of Psalm 41 that we'll be looking at today. They quote it to describe and point to this is the exact circumstances Jesus is in as Judas leaves the upper room to, to go see him handed over um, to, to the Roman authorities and to the, the, the Jews that want him killed. And so we see again and again in the Psalms, not only does it invite us to feel and give expression to those feelings and have real communion with God, not only does it call us into a community, but we see Jesus here in ways that we can't see him anywhere else in Scripture. And it's beautiful. So as we turn to Psalm 41, our, our hope is that you would you'd enter into these Psalms, not just study them, that, that, that your weeks would be saturated with meditating on, thinking, praying, singing even, in the light of these psalms. And so let's look, begin at verse 1, 2, and 3, as they kind of set the stage for where we'll be going the rest, um, the rest of the psalm as, as David actually begins to pray, starting at verse 4. Um, he says this, <clears throat> Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Um, you'll notice in verse 4, there's a transition. So he's been, he's been talking in the third person for those three verses. And then in verse 4, there's this transition to the first person. As for me, I said, and then he gives expression to um, his, his actual prayer before God. Um, so these three verses kind of set the stage. And they instruct us on how we're supposed to read the, the final part of this chapter, um, beginning in verse 4. And the key line to understanding everything else that's going on in this chapter is the very first line. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, there's two ways that we generally understand the word considers here. Um, and, and sometimes when, when we'd hear a line like, blessed is the one who considers the poor, um, we would take that to mean blessed is the one who takes care of, blessed is the one who is invested in, but blessed is the one who, who bends his life for the good of the poor. And that would be a very biblical idea. We see it all over the place in the Bible, this call to, to, to consider the poor in that way. But the word that's actually translated for considers here does not mean that. It means something else. It means to reflect on, to think about, to observe. So, so what David is inviting us to do in this psalm, um, this, this psalm is not first and foremost uh, about ethics or social justice or, or orienting our lives to serve, um, to serve the poor. That, that, that's all over the place in the Bible. Don't take that as an excuse not to be um, considerate of the poor and to, to care for the poor. That's just not what's going on in this particular psalm. 
In this psalm, he's inviting us, he's commanding us, he's commending to us to take a few minutes and observe, think about, reflect upon the poor. And so in these three verses, that's what David actually does. Um, most scholars believe that this psalm was actually written by David prior to him becoming king. Um, during a season of life when he was actually very, very poor. He was homeless. He was wandering around everywhere. And at some um, point during that season of his life, um, he found himself in what was apparently, um, uh, under um, at least those observing his life, um, appeared to be his deathbed. And he's surrounded by enemies. He's surrounded by so-called friends who are betraying him. Um, but, but this is not King David sitting on his throne, um, uh, surrounded by kind of the, the, the winnings of his conquering other kingdoms. Now, this is David, um, the shepherd boy, on the run, um, being hunted down by Saul. And David invites us to examine his life. That, that there's blessing in considering, observing, thinking about what we are to find as we look at David's life. And then he tells us what we will see. I made just a short list of what we're supposed to see here. And, and, and what we're supposed to see, though, is to be summarized by this. You will see God. It, it's interesting how God-oriented these three verses are. Um, I, I used the illustration this morning of, um, I, I don't know what those prints are called, but they're the, um, you'll have uh, what appears to be a black image on a white card. And so you'll see what appears to be a vase, just a nice vase on a card. But um, the, the, this black vase sitting on this card. But, but if, you can, um, if you can draw the contrast, you, you'll see two faces. Um, and, and as you go to this psalm, the, the first thing you, you might apparently see is you might see this black vase um, sitting in the middle of a white card. You might see David and his struggles and his pain and, his, um, and, and what's going on in his life. And, and that kind of jumps out at you. It's the first thing you see. But the center of these verses, what David calls us to look at, and when I was a child, um, they had these, you know, these, these cards everywhere. Um, and it was kind of this trick, and I could never see the other image. And I could never see it. And I would fake like I could see it. And then my friends figured out that I was faking and I couldn't see it. And they would ask me what the other image was. And then I was found out. I would just have to make things up and they would mock me. And I still have tapes from that. If you want to talk to me afterwards. So um, uh, the, 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 the image that he wants us to see is God. His point is not the poor. The, the point is not even the wisdom that's to be gained by considering the poor the point is that you will discover the nature and the character of God himself. And, and listen to what's to be found just in these three verses. That the Lord is the one who delivers. That the Lord is the one who protects. That the Lord is the one who keeps. The Lord is the one who blesses. The Lord is the one who protects him from, from being handed over to his enemies. The Lord is the one who sustains. The Lord is the one who restores. I don't know what you, what you think God is like. The song we, we just sang said, I've heard what other people think you're like. But this is what the psalmist says you're supposed to see. A God who restores, a God who keeps, 
a God who protects, a God who raises up. And we shouldn't blow past that. I don't know what particular circumstances you find yourself in today. I don't know if you can relate to, to where David's going to go in the next few verses. That, that um, maybe you're sick. Maybe your life is marked by despair and brokenness right now. Maybe you find yourself in the throes of um, an addiction. Maybe you, you just you wake up and what you feel is despair. Or maybe what you feel is anxiety day in and day out. Or, or maybe the worst of all. You wake up feeling something that you know isn't true. You ever been there? Feeling despair, feeling death, feeling anxiety, feeling fear, and you cognitively think your way out of it. I think that's the worst of all. Because you feel crazy. But consider what God is like. He is the Lord who protects the Lord who keeps, the Lord who raises up, the the Lord who shepherds, the Lord who sustains. These words shouldn't come to you merely as cognitive realities. They should come to you as words of hope. You live in a world ruled by a sovereign God. Your own world is ruled by a sovereign God who who protects, who keeps, who delivers, who blesses, who sustains, who restores. And so before David ever gets to his own circumstances, before he ever invites us to enter into his prayers, he he, um, proclaims to us, hey, consider the poor, consider me, consider my life as it appears to be on a deathbed, surrounded by enemies and surrounded by betrayal and surrounded by pain. And here's what you'll observe. Not a story of despair. Not a story of absolute brokenness. You will discover a God who keeps and delivers and protects and blesses. You will see God. And it's from this place that David then begins to actually pray. So turn over with me to verse 4. Maybe you're already, you didn't have to turn over. Maybe your Bible's different than mine. I had to turn over. And first he gives, I want to focus our attention on the particular circumstances um, that David is in. He doesn't give us a ton of details. In fact, one of the things that we'll find as we work our way through the Psalms is uh, we were actually gathered together, a group of us, I'm reflecting on the Psalm we'll be in next week, Psalm 42. And, And there's darkness there, there's pain there, there's despair there, and there's even less details in Psalm 42 about the particular circumstances that David finds himself in there. He, he doesn't give us a whole lot of circumstances, and, and as we work our way through the Psalms, you're going to be frustrated again and again and again, because, I mean, if your mind's like mine, I'm looking at this, I'm hearing this prayer, and I'm going, but what's going on? Like, what is this? Who's, who's the betraying friend? Who's, um, is he sick? When is this happening? Is he sick as king? Is he sick in a cave somewhere? Is he a boy? Is he an adult? Man, what's going on? I, I, want, I want the details. I want the circumstances so I can understand what's happening in David's life, but I think it's quite on purpose that he doesn't give us those details. Or rather that God hasn't given us those details. 
Because I don't, I don't think the point of the Psalms, I don't think the point of David's pain is for us to draw one-to-one correlations and try to find the exact same circumstances in our own life. No, I think the point is to say, you will have trouble. You'll face betrayal. You'll face sickness. You'll face despair. You'll face dark nights that seem to go on forever and ever and ever. You'll face moments of, of, of just sheer paralyzing anxiety. You'll have close friends who betray you. You'll hear whispers or, the, or the, the imagined, even the imagined whispers of those who are out to get you. His point isn't to say, hey, here's a set of circumstances that will be identical to David's, and now here's the prayer you pray. You know, his, his point in these verses, I believe, is simply to say, you're going to have trouble. Real, painful trouble. You're going to have dark nights. You're going to have pain. You're going to have a close friend betray you. You are going to face pain. You're going to face despair. You're going to face anxiety. I promise you. The the call to know God, the, the expressiveness of the love of God for us in the gospel does not wash away or kind of, um, kind of isolate us from a world that is marked by trouble, marked by people who will sin against us and that we will sin against. It's not going to keep you from sickness. It's not going to keep you from those moments when you're too weak to even get out of bed. And God has not promised us um, kind of a happy, clappy life where everything goes like you want it to go. Quite the opposite. Jesus actually says in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. You will have pain. You will have dark nights. You will be betrayed. You will. So what do we do when that comes? What do you do, as David describes here, man, his deep betrayal, his close friend, verse 9, in whom he trusted, ate his bread. This isn't just um, kind of a, a throwaway line like David threw some bread to some guy and he left him. No, um, this, this, this marks deep communion, real friendship. And this is a, a brother with whom David walked and loved and cared for. He was a close friend and they ate together. That's holy in David's time. Even he has lifted his heel against him. It means wielded his power, gone and set his face against him. So in the face of that kind of trouble, that kind of pain, those kinds of whispers, how does David pray? Look at verse four. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. That's weird. He he goes on to describe everybody sinning against him. Everybody who's 
whispering about him, everyone who's seeking his destruction, um, everybody who's out to get him, everybody who's betrayed him. He's going to go on to describe circumstances that appear, they appear on, on, at least as he's describing them, they appear simply to be not that David sinned, that the problem is with David and his rebellion against God, that he's done something against God. No, they appear on the surface to be everybody's sin against David. But look where David starts. Have mercy on me. Be gracious to me. Oftentimes, given these kinds of circumstances, our, our tendency is to do one of two things. On the one hand, our tendency is to say, hey, um, this guy over here, he's sinning against me. Um, it's his problem. Um, he's done all the wrong. And to kind of paint everything into one corner. And the problem is that guy. You, back there in the corner. You're the problem. Sorry. <laughs> like, he's the bad guy. He's the problem. Or to say, I'm the problem. I'm completely the problem. Paint it the other direction. Man, man if I could have just done the right things, if I, if I hadn't spoken this way, then everything would be fine. But David is free. This kind of freedom is powerful. To, to objectively look at the world around him, objectively look at these friends who are betraying him, objectively look at these enemies and hear these whispers and to say two things at the same time that we must learn to say. One, they're sinning against me. This is real. They really are enemies. They really are doing evil things to me that they should not be doing. And I'm a sinner. I need grace. I need mercy. So he's free to do both. But also look what he says. He says, heal me, for I've sinned against you. I don't think this is just physical healing. I don't think David is just looking at himself um, in the sickbed and praying that, that, that God would heal him. But I think it's absolutely that. I think it's more. So we live in a world in which we sin and we are sinned against. And that creates a split life. It creates anxiety, it creates fear, it creates despair, it, it creates hearts that are broken, that aren't whole, that aren't integrous. David says, don't just forgive me. Don't just be merciful to me. Don't just be gracious to me. Heal me. Make me whole again. Yeah, raise my body up, but, but heal me. So in the face of trouble, in the face of circumstances, and we learn to both confess our sins, but we learn both to um, express our need of grace and mercy and kindness, to be washed and to be cleansed. And we also have the freedom to actually call sin, sin. And to live in this beautiful, difficult place of being able to name others' sin and also give names to our sin. But, but jump down with me. Verse 11. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. So David pleads before God, not only that, that he would be forgiven, not only that God would be gracious to him, not only that God would bring a, a kind of integrity or wholeness or healing to, to, to David's person, but, but now listen to this. I know that you delight in me. 
every single person in this room longs to be delighted in. Now, some of you right now are sitting there going, no, 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 no. That sounds arrogant. That sounds proud. That sounds, I don't want to be delighted in. That's about me. I want to contend with you this morning that you long to be delighted in. Um, On Easter, we bought our children a trampoline. Um, Secretly, it was for me. Um, But we bought it for them. There's there's only been one broken limb so far. We're anticipating many, many more. Um, But we have have insurance. And so... um, uh, one of, the, one of the, the, the new kind of calls that happens um, in our house, and I love it, are that the trampoline is actually um, just to the side of our house, and the side our kitchen is on. And you can, um, now that summer's here, unless there's an um, apocalyptic sort of hurricane that comes, like on a Friday night, and uh, the streets are rivers. Um, but we le- generally leave those kitchen windows open, and our kids are out there jumping up and down on the trampoline. And, and, and something we hear over and over and over again now is, Mom, look. Dad, look. And then, like, the first couple days, it was, Dad, look. <laughs> awesome. Um, <laughs> the other day, like, um, I, I get home, uh, the, the kids hear me pull up. Um, Hayes comes running out. I've never seen him this excited in his life. He comes over. He grabs my arm. He's literally dragging me over. Dad, you got to come and look. Come and look. And he starts yelling, he's coming, he's coming. Um, and so then I look, and he runs over. And we have this, or we had, I tore it down yesterday, um, a shed uh, that was right beside the uh, right beside of the trampoline, and the kids had lowered the net. They learned how to unhook the net on the safety net. Um, they learned to disconnect the safety net, so there was um, enough room there. And Hayes goes and climbs up on top of the shed, and all three kids are up there, and they take turns jumping off the shed onto the trampoline, rolling generally um, until they get right up to the edge of the trampoline and stopping perfectly um, before they fell off. The, the broken limb, by the way, didn't have noth- had nothing to do um, with the shed that I tore down. Um, but uh, <coughs> um, they, they, they all go up on the shed and they, they're just so concerned that I'm going to look away at the wrong moment. They're just yelling and shouting, Dad, look. Dad, watch. Dad, look. Did you see that? Did you see that, Dad? Did you look at that? They want to see a smile on my face. They want to see me delighting in it. There's not an ounce of pride. There's not an ounce of, of malice. There's, there's nothing going on there but the sheer longing that their dad would see them jump off the shed and delight in it. This isn't pride. It's the humblest thing in the world. You long to be delighted in by your father. Now, we distort that, we twist that, we, we, we turn it into all kinds of weird things. Like, look, I can jump farther than this person can. I can do more than this person can. I'm a better preacher than this person is. I'm a better dad than this person is. Whatever the thing is, we twist it, it gets distorted, it becomes pride. But it's bare essence You long to hear, to see, to know the smile of God. And that is not arrogant. That is not proud. It is the most childlike thing about you. David says, I know that you delight in me. 
Not just, I know that you've forgiven me. Not just, know, not just, I know that you're going to heal me. But right now, right now, in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of whatever this is, you delight in me. Do you know that? Maybe you don't know that. This, this is one of the greatest fruits of the gospel imaginable. God delights in you. To, to quote C.S. Lewis, you are, even now, a part of the divine happiness. Um, we quote all the time here that um, the, the, the old prophets, it says, and he, he sings over his people to do them good. And generally when we quote it, I think about it in terms of um, this kind of prophetic hope that, that, that God one day intends to do great good for us, um, but, but never emphasizing what I think is maybe the most beautiful note in that line. He sings over us. Sings is, is it's never about intention. Everywhere it occurs in the Old Testament, it is a, an act that flows from beholding something. He sings over creation. Why? Not because of what he hopes it will one day be, but rather he sings over it as he sees reflected. Yes, imperfectly. Yes, polluted. Yes, twisted. But he still sees at the heart of the mountains and the ocean, he sees reflected back to him his character, his beauty, his greatness, his holiness. Do you know that he even now sings over you? Do not be so arrogant as to not hear this and feel this as the greatest news imaginable. Many of us have forgotten how to be a child. But it is the children that will come to him. I know that you delight in me. And then verse 12, that you have upheld me because of my integrity. And, and you set me in your presence forever. He, he pulls together um, these two things in the light of him just declaring the delight of God over him. He says, you have upheld me because of my integrity. Um, what we are tempted to do with that line is say that because I'm integrous, that because I, um, and then we, we translate that to mean because I lack sin, because I'm good enough, therefore um, I uh, will be upheld and I will be kept in the presence of God forever. But, but I want to remind you, this is the same psalmist who just asked for forgiveness, just confessed his sins, just asked for grace and expressed his need for healing. So whatever this integrity is, it is not at all at odds with um, a, a man who will confess to God his need for grace, his need for mercy. You see, integrity means wholeness. It means devotedness. It means you're not split in two. David has seen the delight of God. He's seen the character of God. He's seen the kindness of God. He's seen the blessing of God. And, and that vision, that understanding that God is gracious to him, that God delights in him, has brought integrity to him. It has brought wholeness to him. 
Wholeness that expresses itself, I believe in verse 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. A kind of blessing aimed at God. A kind of life utterly devoted to this God, to the happiness of this God, the joy of this God, obedience to this God, a love for this God. Not without sin, but a kind of utterly, I am utterly given over to this God. But what's interesting to note is that integrity, that that wholeness, it it didn't arise, at least here, out of David's own self-efforts. It arose as he pled for grace. It, It arose as he was utterly grounded in the knowledge that God delights in him. It it, it arises as he anticipates and he longs for dwelling in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. It, It doesn't come from where you think it comes from. And so it is with us. You must see who this God is. You must experience the grace that he pours out on us in Jesus. You must know, you must be utterly confident in and grounded in and saturated with and delighted in the marvelous reality that he delights in you. How do we do that? How do we be those kinds of people? I think it's in verse 1. Blessed, this kind of blessedness, is the one who considers, pays attention to, or reflects upon, or meditates on the poor. But let me go further. Blessed is the one who considers the poor one. All of the gospel writers, all of them, quote verse 9. I don't think they're just saying, hey, this is circumstantially similar to what David is giving expression to. I think in the end, the psalm is about a number of different things. It points to echoes that run through our own lives that were absolutely there for David. But at the end of the day, you know what this psalm is about? This psalm is about Jesus. Jesus is the poor one. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 8, 9? Where Paul tells us, he reminds us, he proclaims to us, um, Jesus, he was rich and yet he became poor. That in him we might become rich. Blessed. Psalms about Jesus. How do we become those who are confident in this this God who blesses and protects and lifts up and upholds? How do we become those who who can can reflect realistically on the sins of others, but also get in our face and plead for grace and for healing and for wholeness? How on earth, given what most of our fathers have done, How on earth will we ever become those who just exult like children in the fact that God delights in us? 
How will we ever be whole? Think the point of this psalm, the point of this command to consider the poor. It's a call to consider Jesus. The one who dies in our place. The one who cleanses us of our sin, purchasing grace for us. The one um, who Isaiah says, it's by his stripes we are healed. The one in whom the Father's infinite delight rests. And what does Paul say the hope of glory is? That Christ is in us. Yes, even now. How do we become this kind of people? How do we achieve this kind of blessing? Consider Jesus. Blessed is the one who considers Jesus. Let's pray. And so God, I pray, I pray right now that my brothers and my sisters would know and receive and marvel that you delight in them even now. Not in some self they might become someday, not, not um, if they achieve enough or they earn enough or they do enough good things, but even now because of Jesus, um, because of what you've clothed them in, because of how you've wired them and made them, even now you sing. So God, make us humble enough in the light of who Jesus is to receive that, to delight in that, to marvel at that. Oh God, may we confess our sins and because of Jesus find a Father who forgives us our sins. May we plead that you would heal us and because of Jesus may we find a Father, a good Father, a good, good Father who brings healing. And oh God, may we be marked by wholeness wholly giving ourselves to know you, to love you, to delight in you, to dwell in your presence forever. In your name we pray, amen.